Hey, I'm glad you're here. I want to uh, talk about um, free choice a little bit, life and death, uh, Disneyland, <laughs> and uh, let's just jump in. Let me just begin by, by saying that r- right now we, we, we just sort of finished the, the, the great holiday of Shavuos, the, the receiving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, and, and it sort of culminates a, a cycle that really begins with um, Tubishvat, and then we go into Purim, and then we have Pesach, and we have Lagba Omer, and then we have Shavuos, and there are actually even there's Yom Ha'atzmaut in there, and it's 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 just one one party, one celebration after another, and we get to Shavuos, and then now we're after Shavuos, and now sort of like. Tammuz and Av are in front of us, which are months that are associated with basically exile and um, and the destruction of the the Holy Temple, the Beis Hamikdash. And I I was just kind of thinking about this, and I was thinking, wow, you know, I don't really want to go into that period. You know, I want to. I've been this this last period has just been great, and that seems like normal and right, and and um, and then. It, it sort of hit me like, well, why do we have to go into that period? Meaning to say, who's to say that that period is, is, is going to come? So, Rebbe Nachman of Breslov uh, very famously says that if you believe that something uh, can be broken, meaning that you have the ability to break something, you also have to uh, believe that you have the ability to fix it. And so, and so that's, that's what it is every year. And, and it's, there is a, a very subtle, but very profound, um, uh, little, it's, it's just, you're just altering your, your thinking process by a couple of degrees in a different direction. But that, that altering your process of thinking in that, in that slight way has major, major, major consequences on everything. And the adjustment that I'm talking about making is not accepting as a given just just what it's been before. And I've heard this as the, the definition of, of exile itself, which is that thinking that because today is like today, and because today is like yesterday was, that tomorrow is going to be like today, and that tomorrow is going to be the way yesterday was. And that's the definition of exile. Because basically what you're doing is you're, you're burning the whole concept of, of, of your future. The, the whole idea of the future being unwritten. On some level. On some level. That's, that, that's life itself. That's life itself. I'll tell you something. I, I woke up with this thought. Every once in a while I wake up with thoughts and it's, they're, they're thoughts that I wasn't thinking about. So, and they're completed thoughts. And so, it's a very kind of strange thing when that happens. And this was one of those thoughts that I, I woke up with just recently. And it's going to sound very odd, but anyway, um, I think the, the point is actually very beautiful. Which is, I thought to myself, why do we have our eyes on the front of our head? Why not have them on the back of our head? Right? Or, I mean, I wasn't thinking this at the time, or if you want to think about it, why not have one eye in the front of your head and one eye in the back of your head? Or why just have two eyes? Why not have eight eyes and have them all over your head, or whatever it is? I mean, you know, it's, on, on some level it's humorous, but on another level, this type of thinking, I think, is a very um, uh, uh, wonderful way to understand what is. Meaning to say that that nothing has to be the way it is. And, and, and if, you, if you look into things and if you analyze things in that way, that nothing has to be, it doesn't have to be like it is right now, and you think of all the other possibilities, it's a very expansive way of thinking and it will invite a lot of uh, profound insights into your understanding of reality. Because God can construct the world any way he wants. He doesn't have to do it this way. Just because we've been living with it this way, this is one of a trillion options. So, so I thought to myself, well, 
why do we have eyes in the front of our head and not in the back of our head? And the thought came to me is that so that we should be looking to the future instead of always looking to the past. Because the future is in front of us. So, so this is very much tied to this notion of did you anticipate the coming of Mashiach? The rectification of the world, the fixing of the world. And, and we have to understand that if it's a given and we've been promised it, then that means it's going to happen. And if it's going to happen, why shouldn't it happen now? So as long as it's going to happen, you see, the, the problem is, is that a lot of people think that, well, maybe it's going to happen. But that's not what our religion says. Our religion says is, it's going to happen. So if it's going to happen, then it's got to happen at some point. In fact, on some level, it's already happened. And what I mean by that is that, as the Rambam says, God is outside of time. He's within time, but he's also outside of time. Which means, from God's perspective, the past, the future, and the present already exists. So if he's made this promise, that means from God's point of view, Mashiach is already here. God's already brought it. Now, it may not be within our timeline yet, but it's already here. So, I had a conversation with uh, Reb Shlomo Karlbach one time. Uh, it was, he was taking me to the mikvah, and um, it was the first time I had ever gone. He had poked his head in the shul, and being new, I thought that services started on time. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I, I was the only one there in a, basically a dark room. And he was on his way to the mikveh uh, before Shabbos started and just kind of poked his head in just to see if anyone was there. And I was there. And he said, you know, I always remember he said, he, he said, David, he said, are, are you into the mikveh or not so much? <laughs> and I always wanted to go, but I didn't know how and no one had ever taken me or explained it. So I was very happy for the opportunity. So we, we, as we were walking to the mikveh, I, I told him, I said, I told him this idea that Mashiach is already here on some level. And, and he agreed. And he said, yeah. He just agreed right away. He said, yeah. He says, we're just making vessels. So that's what, that's what everything is. That's what personal transformation is. That's what uh, mitzvot is. That's what making peace is. All those things are creating a vessel to contain an energy that is, exists in potential right now. It's not here yet. But, but all we have to do is create that vessel and then it comes immediately. Because as it says that, there's a, a, um, a piece of a gadata, an account in the, in, the, in the Talmud, which says that uh, one of these sages, I forgot who was talking with Eliyahu, Elijah the prophet, and he says that Mashiach is coming, you know, tomorrow. And he tells everybody, Mashiach is coming, Mashiach is coming. And, he, and then he didn't come. And he said, well, he said, I hope I'm not misquoting this, but the idea is, Eliyahu says, no, you don't understand, he's coming today, he's coming, he's coming. Anytime he's coming, as soon as you guys get it together, he's coming. So it's all, it's all contingent on us. It's not contingent on, is it true? Will God do it? None of that are factors. God is going to do it. So, yeah, very good, thank you. So he's coming if you heed his voice. So as soon as we do that, it kicks in. So, so with this in mind, I want to, um, I want to just, uh, just share something. We had um, a simcha, a happy occasion, at the, uh, at the Happy Minion uh, yesterday. Someone was celebrating their wedding, which is going to happen today. Yeah, Mazel tov. And so, you know, there's a, a uh, very strong custom uh, among the Jewish people that the, the, the Shabbos before your wedding, uh, the, the, the groom, the chassan, uh, is called up to the Torah and he, he says the blessing over the Torah and then uh, people just kind of celebrate and they, they throw candy, uh, which is a nice custom, you know. 
And, um, you know, the, the idea, from my understanding, I, I haven't read this, but it just seems intuitive to me, that the idea of throwing candy is, it's a blessing that, that, that kindness should run after you during your lifetime together, you know? You should be, it, it should follow you, it should chase you, you know? And if necessary, it should hit you. <laughs> you know, if you are too, uh, too blind to see it, you know? So, it's, uh, so you're just showered with it, you know? And, and it's, uh, in a lot of places, they, they'll, they'll sing, Simantav uh, Mazeltav, uh, and then they go into another verse, David Melech Yisrael Chai Vekayam. And they, they sing, it's, it's really one song, but they sing these two verses. And for the longest time, it seemed to me like, well, you know, Mazel Tov is, it's a blessing that, that there should be a time of favor and there should be a, a, a divine, heavenly, beautiful flow um, outpouring for, for, for you, for the couple, whatever it is, for the family, for everybody. And, um, and then you're singing about... Uh, David, king of Israel, that he should live forever. And it's sort of like, what? It seems like a real non-sequitur. Like, why are you connecting these two verses? Um, so then, after some time of contemplating that, I saw it in Kiddush Levana, which is um, a very special prayer that we say once a month. And um, it's for, I'll go into it a little bit more in a, in a moment. It's for the kind of the rectification of the moon. Because when, when um, there's a very interesting uh, verse, Pasuk, in the, in the Torah, in the beginning, it says that God created two great luminaries. So, it's talking about the sun and the moon. And the fact that they're referred to as two great luminaries, the sages understand that they were both equal in size, because they're referred to in the same way. And then, by the end of the Pasuk, the same Pasuk, it says... You know, the bigger one is the sun and the smaller one is the moon. So there's a whole story unfolding within that one verse. In the beginning, they seem to be of equal stature. And by the end of that verse, one is bigger and one is smaller. So the, the rabbis read between the lines and they reconstruct the, the narrative of, of this aspect of creation, which is that originally the sun and the moon were the same size. And then the moon got... got we, how we say, God arrogant, and it said to God, um, is it appropriate for two heads to share the same crown? One crown. Meaning to say, here are two great orbs, and the sky is like their crown, and is it proper that both should share it? So, God says back to the moon, good point, make yourself small. <laughs> Right, and I heard Rabbi Wine say that every time you look up the moon, at the moon, this is for all of us. Every time you see the moon, it should be a lesson in humility. Rabbi Wine, there are one. So, um, so that's a, it's a it's an ongoing lesson in, in humility. But um, God promises that one of the aspects of the fixing of creation will be that the moon will grow back to its original size. And by the way, the sun is going to get even bigger. But that, that, that aside, the moon will go back to its original size. Now, now there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot to this. Basically, uh, without going through all the um, depths of it, w- w- what this is talking about on a much deeper level is um, the creation of the possibility of free choice and the hiding of God's face in this world so that we have free choice. That's, that's what this narrative about the sun and the moon is really talking about. Because what God did was he diminished his light in this world. He concealed himself on some level so that we could have free choice. Because if we understood that we were always standing in the presence of God in the same way that angels understand that, we would never have free choice in the way that angels don't have free choice. So because we think that, well, maybe it's just only me and it's only up to me, now that creates free choice. So just in general, this is one small example of how the sages communicate. Because as you can see, we're talking about something utterly profound, the existence of free choice and everything like that. And yet it's couched in a tale about the sun and the moon. 
changing sizes. So, so if anyone doesn't fully appreciate the, 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 the mode that the Torah communicates in, and, and how sophisticated the concepts are, even if the telling is quite simple, then they don't understand the nature of Torah study. So it's, it's, it's um, you know, I always like uh, this quote from Vladimir Nabokov, uh, the great novelist who said, please don't understand me too quickly. So, so anyway, this is true for the Torah even more so. Anyway, we're asking ourselves this question, how is it that the how is it that when people are celebrating happy occasions, we sing Mazel Tov, and then about that King David should live forever? Seems like a non sequitur. So the answer is that in, when we say this prayer for the fixing of the moon, which is called Kiddush Lavana, we say it once a month, while the moon is still ascending, okay, and the key line in Kiddush Lavana is we ask God to fill the flaw in the moon. All right, that's why you have to say it while the moon is still waxing, before it reaches full moon status. Because you're praying to God, fill the flaw in the moon. That's a prayer for the fixing of the world, for the for the arrival of Mashiach. That's 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 what it's all about. Okay. So in that prayer of Kiddush Lavana. One line we say, Mazel Tov. <laughs> and the next line we say, David Melech, Yisrael Chai So, So that's where those two verses come together, is in Kiddush Lavana. So now we have a new, so now that we know that they're not non-sequiturs, that we're actually taking that from a prayer service, the next question is, why are we talking about Kiddush Lavana when someone had a baby, when someone's getting married, when someone, you know, did something? So what are we singing about the moon for <laughs> at this moment? That's the next question. <laughs> so this came to me while we were dancing and celebrating for this person yesterday. His wedding is today. So in his merit, it should be a blessing for really for all of us and, and all the rest. So he says, so it hit me, you see, I'll tell you something before we get to it. Just still on the same subject. The difference between the lunar year and the solar year is 11 days. And this number 11 is very, very interesting. Because this number 11, if you think about it from this paradigm, is the, is the fixing of the world. Because when the, the, the prophecy is that the moon is going to be restored to the sun. So, so if the difference of the cycle is 11 days, once the, full, once the fullness of the moon becomes like the sun, they're going to have the same cycle. So in this way, this number 11 is a crucial number in terms of understanding the fixing of the world. So... So on Rosh Chodesh, we bring 11, which is Rosh Chodesh is when we celebrate the arrival of the new moon, we bring 11 sacrifices in the, in the, uh, in the Beis HaMikdash. So this is talking about the rectification, you see? But I'll tell you something else that's very amazing, which just came to me this week, which is that Everybody knows that between going from Egypt to Israel, which in itself, when the Jewish people made that journey from Egypt to Israel, that was a microcosm of all of world history. Because Egypt represents exile, Israel represents redemption, and traveling through, through the desert, is the work of this world on the way to redemption. And everybody knows we had 42 stops. And everybody knows that every single person in their own life has 42 stops. In terms of relationships, jobs, geographical locations, spiritual levels, however you want to understand the 42 stops, everyone goes through their own 42 stops in terms of the fixing of their own lives. But what not everybody knows is that 
It wasn't supposed to take 40 years. That was a direct result of what's known as the Chet Hamaraglin, the sin of the spies. And you can study that on your own. There are lots of talks on it. But, but that was very much plan B. Do you know how long it was supposed to take for the Jewish people to go from Mount Sinai to, or maybe it was from Egypt, I don't know, maybe it was from Mount Sinai, I'm not sure, to, to Israel? Eleven days. It was supposed to be eleven days. And that was going to be the final fixing. The Jewish people arriving with Moshe Rabbeinu in Israel. That, that would have been it. So, and that was 11 days. Interestingly, you also have 11 spices. You know, when, the, when uh, you have the mixture um, that was brought in the uh, Holy of Holies. And, and, and that represents fixing also. Because not only is it on Yom Kippur, so it's bringing atonement and, and forgiveness and kapora to the Jewish people, to the world. But... Um, it's also, uh, it's also significant because it's, um, it's the sense of smell. And that these 11 spices, which represent fixing, also correlate with the sense of smell, which is the one sense which wasn't injured or damaged in the Garden of Eden. So in other words... The Bnei Asaskar brings that we saw the fruit, that was the eyes that were damaged, we held it before we ate it, that sense of touch. We listened to the snake, that sense of hearing. Um, we ate it, that's the sense of taste. The only sense that wasn't damaged was the sense of smell. It was, it's not, that's the only sense that's not referred to in that account. And so, interestingly, when we go into the Holy of Holies, which is this intersection of heaven and earth, and we're bringing forgiveness and completion and everything like that, you have this 11 spices, which is, again, the rectification of the lunar cycle, which is the rectification of the entire world. So, in other words, that's, that, that symbolizes perfection in that instance, right? Because it correlates with the sense that wasn't damaged and never went into exile. Okay. So now, getting back to this dancing... When you, when you understand that we're... Why are we, why are we talking about Kiddush Levana? Why are we talking about the rectification of the moon? At this moment. Because that's the blessing. We're saying, you know what? This Simcha, this should be the last bit of work. Should be the, this should be the finishing up of everything. Right? What could be a greater celebration than that? We're done. Your celebration is the celebration of all of humanity. This is it. We're done. You know, if you think about it, like a, a wedding itself, like we have something called a seum. A seum is when we finish a uh, volume of the Talmud or uh, of the Mishnah. It's a big deal to make a seum. But a wedding, in a lot of ways, is like a seam of a lifetime. You know? Like that whole chapter in your life is coming to a close. So it would make sense that... And what is all of history? It's just the love story of God and the Jewish people, God and humanity. What's Mount Sinai? That's the ultimate chuppah. That's the ultimate wedding between heaven and earth. God and the Jewish people. God and the world. Right? Because the whole Torah was revealed, which included... The Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noach, the seven mitzvahs incumbent upon all of humanity. So that's heaven and earth. That's, it's, it's, it's everyone is included in this, you know? Everyone has a share in the Torah. So, so I saw something um, from Rabbi Wolfson, and I never saw this perspective before about, about a wedding. I thought it was very, very interesting. Which is that I think that the sort of the classic way, I think this might be from the Baal Shem Tov, of understanding like what, a, what the dynamics of a wedding are, is that you start off as one soul. Um, uh, men and women start off as one soul in Shemayim, in, in, in heaven. And then they come down at two different times into 
two different bodies, right? And then, uh, under the chuppah, they come back together again. So, in other words, it's a reuniting of that which was. Okay? And I've always thought of it in those terms. But Rabbi Wolfson offered a different perspective, which I thought was very, very interesting. You know, first there was Adam, before Chava. So, first you had Adam, before Eve. And he said, and so, so everyone knows the narrative that God takes a part of Adam out, and from that part creates Eve, and then they come together. So what he said was that when Adam existed, Eve was inside of him, and all husbands and wives were together, inside of Adam. Which I never heard that before, but if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. So all husbands and wives were together inside of Adam. And then Eve is taken out, and then they come back together again. Right? But, um, but that, that I thought was kind of intense, you know? So, so you see, you see that, that it's very deep. And I, my friend said to me, kind of just half-jokingly, he said, so we're always 11 days away from Mashiach. And he, he wasn't being that serious, but that's what he said. And then I said, you know, we were talking between the aliyahs of the reading of the Torah, which ideally you're not supposed to even talk between the aliyahs, by the way. But anyway, we did. And then I wanted to respond to him, but they were reading the Torah. But then as soon as they finished the aliyah, I said back to him, I said, you know, you can only say we're 11 days away if you understand that today is always the 11th day. <laughs> then you can say that. <laughs> then you can say that. And then he said back to me, he said, yes, that's a very important point. <laughs> because it's always now. It's always right now. Everything is always right now. All of life is always right now. You know? Um... And that's a little bit what I was talking about before, the idea that we're going, we finished Shavuos, and now we're going to Tammuz and Av, which is this whole kind of exile energy. But, says who? Says who? It's only an exile mentality which creates this foregone conclusion type of sense. So, in other words, if you want to think, if you want the redemption, you have to think with the consciousness of redemption. Which is that we've been promised this, the fixing of the world, it exists, it's going to happen at some point. So why not now? And I'm paraphrasing, if you can hear the echo of it, a Torah that I heard from Reb Shlomo Karlovach, who blessed a chassan and kala, a, a bride and groom. I heard him say this, and I, I love it so much. He said to them, listen, he said, it took one couple to get us into this mess. So who's to say it's not going to take one couple to get us out? And as long as it's going to be one couple, why shouldn't it be you? So in other words, Mashiach is going to come. The world is going to be fixed. So as long as it's going to be fixed, why shouldn't it be now? Why shouldn't it be now? And if you get discouraged and you say, but the world is so broken, well, that's one way of looking at it. But you also have to understand, like the Shem Shmuel says, that all of the merit of all the previous generations still exists to this day. So we're standing on... I mean, you can't even... Imagine how much cumulative merit exists in the world. It didn't disappear. God forbid you should think ever for a moment. I mean, think of everything, every great thing that's ever been done. It all continues to exist. So there's so much good in this world, just, just mountains and mountains and mountains of good. 
that why shouldn't it be just one more mitzvah? One more kind act. Why shouldn't it be? It's like, for instance, I, I was learning with uh, some people, and, you know, we were talking about the, the, um, the, the fact that prophecy, classically speaking, prophecy as we know it doesn't exist anymore. That's our tradition. It does not exist. Now, prophecy exists in a, in a, in a spectrum, meaning to say that there are lower levels, things like what we call Ruach HaKodesh, Das Torah, things like this, which are an aspect of prophecy. But they're not, when we talk about Yirmiyahu, you know, Isaiah, you know, Yechesko, Ezekiel, that doesn't exist. In fact, even the prophecy of the level of Yosef, Joseph in dreams, where he saw it really clearly, that doesn't exist either anymore. That level of dream-related prophecy doesn't even exist. We still have something on the spectrum, it's just not full-blown prophecy. Now, interestingly, one of the conditions of the restoration of prophecy, one of the conditions, is that the majority of Jews in the world should be living in Israel. And I heard that that's happening any year now. We're in 2012. Any, any time now, within the next few years, it's going to happen that the majority of Jews in the world will be living in Israel. Now, I know, I'm not sold, but I know when I was growing up, it was always like there were, yeah, you always thought of like the people living in Israel as being very much the minority in terms of world Jewry. Very much the minority. And now we're going to be the minority, which is fantastic. That's fantastic. You know? So, so but here's the point. The point is, is that if you understand, like, we talk about it all the time, fish swimming in water, that we're like fish swimming in water that were surrounded, engulfed by godliness, right? Prophecy, it would seem, would be the natural condition of consciousness. Why, why wouldn't we all be prophets all of the time? And that is where it's headed. That, that is what we're evolving toward, that complete God consciousness. And, and in fact, it says in Isaiah and Yeshaya, it says that one of the things is that God is going to, the, the awareness of God, the knowledge of God is going to fill the world like the waters fill the ocean. That's what it says. So it, but if you think about it, if we're engulfed, if we're absolutely swimming in godliness, why wouldn't we all be prophets? I mean, do you, do you understand how that is actually a much more logical construct than the idea that we're completely engulfed in it and it seems invisible? I mean, that is actually quite odd. That's odd. And yet we take that for granted and think, no, 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 that's, well, that's the way it should be, you know. This broken thing. <laughs> it's broken. But it's not going to stay broken. It's not going to stay broken. And if you think about it just from an aesthetic standpoint, just the aesthetics of reality, if you will, it's just the natural, of course it should be like that. And I'm not even talking in terms of idealism right now. I'm talking in terms of aesthetics. Just, it's just natural. Of course that goes with that. So, so, um, so I want to go a little bit further. One more point on the number 11 that I was just sort of wowed by. Uh, I heard this from Yehuda Solomon. He said that 11 is the number of the fixing of mazel. And I was like, really? Like, I, I, I was like, where are you getting that from? And he said because when Yosef dreams of um, of one of his dreams are like the stars are bowing down and there are 11 stars bowing down, which is, which is the, that's the, is the change in terms of his mazel, in terms of his elevation to being this, basically this king. And of course, when we talk about mazolos, we're talking about the arrangement of constellations, but, but let's make sure that the tail doesn't wag the dog here meaning to say we have to understand cause and effect. It's not that 
the stars are a certain, in a certain place, therefore something happens, that would be idol worship. What we understand is, is that the arrangement of the stars is a sign to us of what God is flowing down to the world. It's a description of the divine flow of the moment. That's why there actually is a hachma, a, a deep wisdom to astrology. But most people, especially today, we don't know it. The ancients really knew it. And some people today might know it, but we have a prohibition about telling the future. So it's not, it, it, it's, it, it's not an encouraged field to delve, to delve into because 99% of people, unless you're a very, very unusual person, an enormous year Shemayim, of an enormous God consciousness and, and piety, will fall into the trap of predicting the future. It's, so it's not really encouraged, you know? But I'll tell you something very striking, which is that the halacha is, and this is going to sound like a strange halacha, but if an astrologer comes to you with some information, you're allowed to listen. Now you would say, and this is actually brought in the, in the post scheme, in the, in the sources, like, why, like, it's a, you would have to admit that this is unusual that this would ever happen. But nonetheless, let's say you're going to take a trip, and an astrologer comes to you and says, and just, you haven't elicited their input at all, and they come to you and say, it is very dangerous, I've seen in the stars, it's very dangerous for you to take this flight right now, or for you to go on this journey, you're allowed to cancel the trip. Which is fascinating, actually. It's fascinating, that halacha. And by the way, I know a couple that had great difficulty conceiving children. And they really, I don't want to say they had given up, because that's probably not true, but they... They went through many, many, many hardships. We should know from it. It was very, very uh, terrible for them in this respect, emotionally. Anyway, a leading psychic <laughs> who one of them was doing some work with on, a, on just a project volunteered that they were going to have kids. So it was... And the person who heard this was like, kind of like distraught that they had been told this by the psychic. And then I told them this halacha about the astrology thing. Anyway, they, they, they now have a thriving family, Kanaino Hara. Yeah. And they were so happy when I told them this thing that they, you know, because they had been approached independently. You know, because just because they were working with this person... You know, this person just had some sort of insight and just gave it to them. You know, volunteered it. So, but anyway, so you wouldn't think that there would be a practical application that, that, that I, anyway, I would have experienced, but there, there you have one. So, so, anyway. So this idea of 11, again, is because it relates to the stars. And again, just to review the essential point here, it's not that the stars create the reality of the divine flow coming down. The stars are a label at that moment describing what is coming down. So I, I hope that that point is clear. And so because the stars were arranged in a certain way, Yosef understood that, that's, that that was what was going to be coming to him, which was kingship. So in this way, again, you see the number 11 as a number of fixing. Because cause it was foretelling that Yosef and the Jewish people would rise, right? And that's part of the rectification of the world. So, so um, but now I want to get back to this idea of free choice. Because, to quote Rabbi Shimon Green, 99% of life is in your head. <laughs> and you make very conscious decisions, whether you're aware of it or not, and you should be aware of it, of what world you want to live in and how you want to experience reality. And 
you get to decide. Now, there is an ultimate reality, and there is an objective truth, and you can decide something that is completely incorrect, right? But, why wouldn't anyone want to live within the Torah reality? Because not only is it the truth, but it's such a positive, wonderful way to go through life. Why? And you get, you get, you know, double coupons, you know, because it's sort of like, you get to actually live in the world of truth and be happy. Or at least have a shot at happiness. You know, just, I just have to say this as an aside. I was talking with uh, a friend of mine and he's, thank God, he's really, lives a very uh, devoted life and, and really is very much connected and has a very strong relationship with God. But like all of us, it was a process for him. And he was telling me the story that he, right at the beginning of the process of beginning to explore various questions about his lifestyle and, and what he was doing, what he wasn't doing, he was on a date with a woman and um, he wasn't keeping kosher at this point, but he was thinking about it. And his date ordered shrimp. And so he said to her, um, you know, because he, he said he wanted to invite her in on his process at that point and what he was thinking of that, you know. So he said to her, do you ever wonder, like, whether that's the right thing to do, to eat shrimp or not? And she said back to him, God is too busy to worry about those things. And as soon as he said this to me, I said, you know, you should have said back to her, is God too busy to send the blood to your brain? <laughs> right? He's not too busy for that. <laughs> you know, so... <laughs> and by the way, what a slap in the face to God, to think that he's too busy for anything. I mean, anyone who has that thought, and I think a lot of people, even quote-unquote religious people, have that thought. It's such a denial of his infinity. It's such a diminishment of what God is. Like, why do we even bother worshipping a God who's too busy for anything? Who needs a God who's too busy for anything? I mean, the whole premise of God is that he's there every single moment and involved in every aspect of everything. That's the premise. That's the very first thought that we have to have when we think about God. The very first thought. And that he loves us. So, so in terms of free choice, I mentioned I wanted to talk about Disneyland. And... And many years ago, although I don't mention at the Happy Minion, but I don't think I ever mentioned in one of these talks before, um, I had this kind of thought, and um, basically, I was riding this, um, they have this uh, ride there called Autotopia, which, um, it's, 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 it's not one of their premier rides, you know, in my opinion. And, and what it is, basically, is you, ha- you have a track that goes around, like a, a, like a rail, you know. And then you're on a car, and the car has a steering wheel, which you can steer. But um, you go according to where the track sends you. <laughs> so meaning to say, you can steer to the right, but if the track is going to the left, you're going to the left. And so it's a very unsatisfying experience <laughs> because you're, you're, you are being presented with this, um, with this, this uh, illusion, essentially, you know, and, and it, it, it hit me at a certain point that this is a lot like life, you know. Now, I want to be very, very, very clear. I'm not saying free choice is an illusion. Because you could, using that metaphor, say, oh, that's what I'm saying, that no matter which way you turn, you're going to go in a particular direction. I'm not saying that. Judaism believes 
very, 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 very strongly in free choice. It's one of the essential component, components to our understanding of reality. So we have free choice. However, let's understand it in this way. A lot of times, you want to go in this direction, and life takes you in that direction. <laughs> Maybe most of the time. And you're thinking, okay, I'm ready for X in my life, <laughs> and why am I going in this direction? <laughs> and so, and sometimes it's for the openly revealed good, Sometimes we only understand it years later looking back. Sometimes we won't understand it till 120. Why, why it worked out that way. You know? Ronnie Sir made a very interesting point uh, yesterday at the Minion. He said that um, when uh, Moshe blesses all the tribes, the tribe of Shimon isn't... It, isn't even mentioned. And I think when, maybe it's during Yaakov's uh, blessing of Shimon, that basically they're dispersed throughout Israel, this particular tribe, because it was very, a very passionate, hot-headed tribe, you know? And so it was, you wouldn't see that as a blessing, to be, but, but God puts it during the blessings. So we have to understand it as a blessing. So what he was saying was that some things that we would not call a blessing in our life are in fact blessings. So that's just another interesting way of thinking about it, you know? And the idea, I think, is that they were better when they were dispersed, as opposed to altogether. So... It's a simple way of understanding it, but the first point is perhaps a deeper point, just that who would consider that a blessing? And yet, it's in the category of blessings. So, so there's a... There, but there is, again, to go back to this ride, something very cool and wonderful about actually steering where you're going. <laughs> and that feels really good. You're like, okay... And, and that is a Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, where it says that our job is to make our will God's will. To align your will with divine will. And then, that's like, that's a fantastic combination of things. Right? And, and so, or, let's put it another way, to want what you have. That's a huge blessing. To actually want what you have. You know? Because remember, all of our lives are filled with such blessings. And we make a huge mistake. And it's totally natural. And everyone does it. But if you're aware of it, you have a chance of not falling into this. And that is... The, the natural inclination is to have certain desires... That's good. We're supposed to have that. Um, and, then, and then we say, and then if we can turn to God as, as the one who will answer and fulfill our prayers, that's also wonderful. But then we do make, make a little subtle shift for the problematic. We go, God, why aren't you giving me this thing? Why aren't you giving me this thing? And then all of a sudden, our whole expansive focus, all the things that we have and we're being given, right? A roof over our heads. God willing, food to eat, clothes to wear, air to breathe, limbs that work, senses that put us in touch with all sorts of cosmic mysteries and wonders and, and different people that we can enjoy and different places that we can travel to. All this beauty and everything like that. And we single-mindedly narrow down our entire lives to this one particular need or two particular needs. And our whole relationship with God turns confrontational. Because it's, God, you can do this for me. Why aren't you doing this for me? And, that and everything gets turned upside down. So we have to be so careful. And I'm not saying don't want 
what you don't have. And don't pray for things. And I'm not saying give up if you haven't got... I'm not saying any of those things. But what I am saying is that, you know, if, can, imagine a, your relationship with a child. And, and let's say the child wants to go to an amusement park that day. And you say, and you put on a beautiful little dress on the child and, and you give the child a bowl of ice cream and you comb her hair and put a, a pin in her hair that's sparkly and beautiful and you give her a hug and all she can think about is you're ruining her life because you're not taking her to the amusement park. And is that us? Is that us? I don't want to be that kid. I know I probably am a lot of the time. I don't want to be that kid. So, so anyway, let's, let's wrap it up. So the idea is, If you think about it, again, from the standpoint of aesthetics, if God fills the entire world and we're just swimming in godliness, it's what we're doing all day long. Prophecy is actually the natural state of humanity. If you think about it, when God created the world and he created Adam and Eve, that's what it was. That was that's what it was. No one questions that. That, that is normal. And we're going to get back to that to that place. And as long as we're going to get back to that place, and we've been promised it, and we're evolving toward it, and we've got all the cumulative merit of all the generations, why shouldn't it be now? Why shouldn't it be now? And you know, one of the great um, bumper stickers, as far as I'm concerned, and I think it's very, very Jewish, is think globally, act locally. That is very much Judaism summed up in a, in a bumper sticker. Because we've got all these incredibly deep cosmic understandings. Judaism is the most profound understanding, the most profound philosophy, the most profound religion. And yet at the same time, we're so detail-oriented. And when you understand the, the whole of our approach, and how they're not contradictions to each other, but each is fulfilling the other, and we understand that it will be in the details, it will be in the hellos and in the smiles. And you think to yourself, how, how can that matter? But, but, but that's the culmination of everything. The culmination of everything is in the precision and in the practice. That's the culmination of everything. So God should bless us that we should really be expansive thinkers and we should understand that we don't know what tomorrow holds in the best, best, best possible way. 